Welcome to the Stone Choir Podcast. I am Corey J. Mahler. And I'm Woe. Today we're going to be talking about uh, kind of a grab bag of doctrines that are in Scripture that at one point the church held and then just sort of lost track of. And today has either actively repudiated them or just sort of forgotten about them or pretends they don't exist because they're it's kind of awkward that you know we have a, a religion with some of this baggage. Um, following on last week's episode, we talked about, you know, obviously that as Christians, we believe that the whole of Scripture is suitable for reproof and correction of error and for teaching. So if there's something in the Bible that's not being taught, that's not okay. So at the outset, I just want to make clear that when Corey and I are focusing on these things that you don't hear about very much, it's not that we think that, well, the church doesn't look quite right. It should focus on all these things instead. That's not the point. We're not saying stop talking about the gospel, stop talking about the cross, and start talking about these other arguably lesser doctrines. The point that we are making is that if our claims of truth are true, that that Christianity is sourced from God and is eternal in its nature and unchanging, then if there are doctrines that are blinking in and out of existence, something's wrong between our confession and the scripture that we claim to hold to. Uh, so today we're going to talk about a handful of not really connected things, but they are connected in the sense that we have kind of just let them go by the wayside. The uh, The first doctrine we're going to talk about is the doctrine of shaking the dust off your feet. As I mentioned a, a few weeks ago, um, this is something that Jesus directly commanded, and I'll, I'll quote that in a second. And then it appears a couple times in Acts where it was followed exactly as Jesus said it. And then it just kind of vanishes. I, I can't remember ever hearing a pastor talk about it. So we're going to begin there because I think it's one of the most conspicuous examples of something that's a clearly given teaching that I, Corey and I, we, we couldn't find examples of it being upheld at any point in church history. And so that's at least worth, worth asking why. So when Jesus sent the 12 out, he said, and whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is, house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, this is a passage that's repeated in the, in the Synoptic Gospels and is told in slightly different ways that that in totality makes it very clear that Jesus is saying, if someone, if you take the gospel to someone and they reject it, you are to curse them. You are effectively to announce their damnation, to withdraw, and to take it elsewhere. Now, to us today, that sounds utterly shocking. Like, that's, that's the antithesis of the gospel. Like I said, I've never heard a pastor talk about this at all. But Jesus said it, and then here's how the, the Twelve responded. In Acts 13, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's interesting because 
they weren't sad that they had to curse the Jews in that town who rejected the, the word of God. They were rejoicing. They were rejoicing that they were persecuted for the sake of Christ, and they went on because they had other souls to reach who would not reject the word of God. So that was their response, both to Jesus' command and to actually implementing his command immediately after. This was, this was not many years after the command was given. And again in, in Acts 18, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Now that's even more explicit. He's saying, I brought the gospel, I brought the word of God to you, you refused to listen. Now, he didn't blaspheme. He didn't say, damn you, as, as is recorded in uh, Jude, when an angel was striving with the devil, he refused to say, damn you. He said, may the Lord rebuke you. And that's effectively what, what Paul says here. He says, your blood be on your own heads. I'm not guilty of the fact that you're going to hell for rejecting this. So that's twice in Acts where the disciples, the apostles, obeyed exactly what Jesus said to curse those who reject the gospel. And yet today, the, the very notion of that really sets our teeth on edge. Like that's, that's a, it, It's pretty much unthinkable for a Christian to speak in this way, in the way that Jesus spoke, in the way that the apostles acted. Well, now that I'm thinking about it, it, it really ties into a misunderstanding, we'll be charitable, that we have in the modern church. Most people believe that you just keep giving others an infinite number of chances. You keep going back, regardless of treatment, response, all of it. You go back and you give another chance and another chance and another chance. And that's just not how things play out in scripture. And the example that came to mind is probably an obvious one. Others will have thought of it as well by now. And that's Pharaoh. God did give Pharaoh chances to repent. Pharaoh could have let the Israelites go. Pharaoh could have seen these mighty works. This is God. This is the Lord God. Pharaoh didn't do that. But God eventually hardens his heart and confirms him in his sin. So it's not an infinite number of chances that you get. At some point, it's the hardening of the heart or the shaking off the dust from your feet. And we've just totally abandoned that in the modern church. As you said, I've never heard a pastor, except when he has read the passage, say those words. And I've never heard anyone teach about it. And, and there it is, multiple times in scripture. And as you mentioned, we even had trouble trying to find this in the history of the church, not just the modern church. This is something that we just, we run right over it when we encounter it in scripture. It's, you know, some people stumble over the truth, but they pick themselves up and carry on their way. And that's just what we've done with this teaching. But we do find the exact opposite preached today. Uh, Absolutely. In, uh, in the LCMS, uh, Concordia colleges have been closing recently because they've been failures, because there have been no, no people wanted to attend anymore. And two in particular were closed, I think, in the last five years. Uh, first, Concordia Selma, which was a historically black college. It was one of the earliest ones founded by the LCMS to reach African Americans in the South, and also the Bronxville College, um, 
those were closed because they were dismal failures. They were dismal failures because those communities to which we had sought to bring the word of God and faithful teaching roundly rejected it. They wanted no part in it. And yet for decades, we poured good money after bad into those places because they were black, ignoring places where there were others who perhaps would have heard, but we never bothered to try. We continued to scatter good seed on rock, rocky and dead soil. And when we finally closed them, these two places, Selma and Bronxville, are rallying cries for the race baiters in our own synod who say, look how racist these Lutherans are, that they would close the only two black colleges we have. Well, yes, we closed them because those black people rejected God. Why didn't we do it sooner? Now, for anyone to hear that, like, that's just the most shocking, hateful thing any man could possibly think, let alone say. And yet, how is it different with what Jesus said? When you look at, his, at Jesus' words, let me read them again. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when, when you leave that house or town. Jesus wasn't talking about a year or five years or a decade or a century. Jesus said, leave by the sunrise the next day. You leave the place and you curse them behind you. Now, I am not advocating, we are not advocating that you go and you try to share the gospel with someone and the first time they reject you, you say, okay, go to hell. Not remotely what we're saying. I, again, I don't know what to say, except that what we are telling people today is literally the opposite of what Jesus said. And not only won't we say what we said, we're going along with it. So are we the church or not? How is this fundamental teaching, <laughs> one of these passages in red letters from Jesus, where did it go? Why, why is this scene is so insignificant that we can not only delete it, but we can then contravene it in the advancement of modern political goals? I, I think that as, a, as Christians, we need to face that. And again, it, the reason I gave the preface at the, at the beginning of this episode is we're not saying that I want to be a church where we immediately go to people and if they don't like what we say, you just turn tail and say, well, screw those guys. Not the point at all. Obviously, there are people that need time to hear, but what do you do with this? You have to do something as a Christian other than ignore it or contramand it. And yet today, those are the only two options we've been given. Corey and I were talking about these things today because I think maybe there's a third option. Maybe we don't ignore Scripture. Maybe we don't contradict Scripture. Maybe we listen to it. And if Scripture says that we have actually been conducting ourselves in sinful ways, even when we did it with a clean conscience, maybe we should take another look. Maybe that rebuke and reproof and correction of error applies to us too. Because if it doesn't, then it means that we're without sin. And Scripture says something about people who believe that as well. And we should also bear in mind we are actually causing harm to some of these individuals. Because what does it say in Mark? It further goes on to say that you're shaking off the dust as a testimony against them. If you go to someone repeatedly and he repeatedly rejects the word of God, that is worse for him than if he had heard it once or never. Because that is now high-handed impenitent sin. And so every time he hears the gospel and rejects it, that's worse. He is making his eternity worse. You are facilitating his making his eternity worse. 
And so we have to bear in mind what exactly it is that we're doing. We're not really serving God when we're going out and repeatedly confirming the impenitent in their sins. We're not making anything better for anyone. We are making it worse specifically for the person we are pretending to attempt to reach. And we're doing it for two reasons that are the second topic we're going to talk about. We want to give a winsome witness, and we don't ever, ever, ever want to hate, because those are the new commandments of the church that, while there's scriptural warrant to some degree, the warrant that is provided by those who advocate them isn't fundamentally scripture. In, in fact, in many ways, it's contradictory to what the Word says about hate and winsomeness. Well, in the case of winsomeness, I actually have my ESV concordance right here, so I'll go ahead and try to find that for us. Well, the word whore certainly appears a lot in Scripture. <laughs> well, that's not very oh, winsome. Almost two pages there, actually. Whore, whorings, whored, but that's a topic for another day. But here we have win, wins, wine, wink, winnow, winter. Weird. The word winsome doesn't appear a single time in Scripture, and yet I constantly hear it. Not so much from LCMS pastors, although every now and then I do. But this is an evangelical thing in many ways. But the word literally doesn't appear. And for those who think I'm playing fun little word games with the ESV, I encourage you to go look at Strong's for the KJV. It's free. It's online. So this is just something that we've... Well, not we, but we as the church, as it were, have made up out of whole cloth. Because you have the verses that tell you to be persuasive, to be ready and willing to give an answer. But what winsome has come to mean in the church today is be nice. It's just another way of saying, don't be mean. Don't tell people they're sinners. It's just antinomianism. And it's all, it's not even gospel because they aren't really hearing the gospel if they never hear the law. But it's just be nice to people. And then maybe at some point slip in a little bit of Jesus. I'm just bringing up the uh, verse in Titus, which is the least uh, winsome thing you could say to somebody. There are a lot of good examples of not so winsome <laughs> in the modern sense things in yeah. scripture. <laughs> One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. Now, rebuking sharply is it's pretty much forbidden by, by internet Christians, by e-Christians, by people who proudly wave the flag of their faith while proclaiming words that are directly contradictory to Scripture and seeking to buy consciences when they do so. Now, the case to be made for the, the notion of winsomeness is that you shouldn't behave in such a way that brings ill repute to the faith. And Scripture says that repeatedly, and we agree with that. I, we, I, I personally do not have a clean mouth in private. We keep this podcast clean so as not to give offense and so as not to be shameful. Now, that's not me pretending that that is not one of my sins. It's demonstrating to the world and to myself that I can be better than than I am and that I sometimes even try to be. And so 
the the notion of giving a winsome witness is not a bad thing per se. The problem is that it becomes a binding spell that just gets cast by these people into discourse. Whenever someone says something that upsets them, suddenly the winsomeness command has been violated. Like, well, if Scripture says that some people should be sharply rebuked, maybe we need to discuss when the sharp rebuke is to come and how many times the rebuke may be given gently before it must be given sharply. Again, these are questions that we would have faithful pastors discussing if they could even get into the fight to begin with. But when the only discussions and accusations are coming from those who seek to silence dissent, where the dissent is coming from Scripture, we frankly have bigger problems in people's tone. And I think that's what it boils down to, is that there are people who want to tone police and they want to call things hateful, because as long as you're focused on the emotional content of the disagreement, you're distracted from the fact that the disagreement is about what's in Scripture. And you and I, Corey, are always focused on Scripture, and we will vigorously defend Scripture. And I generally try to be nice and to be polite and be to direct and to the point at the beginning with someone but if someone comes back to me with slander and opprobrium and disgust, I'm not going to back down. And that makes them even angrier and more filled with rage because they're used to their name-calling silencing those who would question them. And when the name-calling spells don't work, it just gets nastier and nastier. And it's unfortunate that the observer seeing you know, particularly conduct online where you see people talking back and forth. If things, if the tone turns ugly, an observer who has not paid attention from the beginning will just assume that it's a bad scene and it's it's shameful and it never should have happened. And they won't bother to unwind, where did the evil enter the discussion? Where did the slander enter the discussion? Where did the dispute of scripture enter into the discussion? Because that is where the sin began. And if there's a sharp, sharp rebuke that follows someone blaspheming God, that's not sin. That's obedience to God, and that should be present. Now, the degree, again, to which you rebuke someone should be a function of, of the situation and perhaps the context, but the rebuke needs to come. And just as, as you mentioned a minute ago, in the case where we go back and we go back and we go back to people who roundly reject God entirely— that is to their condemnation. The same thing is true if you fail to rebuke someone in those circumstances. That's exactly what's going wrong. Failing to rebuke is not Christian. Now, the fact that Scripture says rebuke is not licensed for someone to just be a jerk, but it's also not licensed for someone to be a coward and to say nothing when the faith is on the line and when God's Word is on the line. And we need as Christians to find the balance between those two things. I'm not saying balance in some sort of centrist way, but if you can fall off either side of the horse, let's stay on the horse, but the horse involves rebuking error. It sometimes involves speech that is not winsome. It sometimes involves polemics. And if that is obedience to God, then we're going to obey. And if you want to if you want to be involved in the discussions where there are sharp rebukes and, and polemics involved and you don't like the tone, 
get involved and use the tone that you want to see used because your absence allows those who do things in ways you don't like to define the terms of the discussion. And if if Corey and I are doing it wrong, then pastors who agree with these things, who can say things better than us, need to get in front of these things and say them. We're crying out as stones. We're not crying out as pastors. We are men who do not have a vocation to rebuke or correct error in the sense that a pastor does. And we're doing it precisely because it's not being done elsewhere. So I'm happy to step back and to let those who are called to rebuke to do so. But if they're not going to do it, it's going to happen. And I will do it with a clean conscience and with God as my judge because I answer to him. I don't answer to someone who is offended or upset by the tone of my voice when I said something. A lot of the problem stems from the fact that modern pastors and just modern men in general don't want to be confrontational or controversial. And when it comes to the church, when it comes to scripture, and also politics, but that's a discussion for another time, another place, if you are never controversial, if you are never confrontational, well, one, you have the friendship with the world issue, which we'll get into, if not in this episode, then another one in this series. But you also have the issue of you are just slowly losing. You, all you've done is seed the field, you've given up, and the world, sin, death, and the devil are going to flood in and take over that field. And that's what so many modern Christians have done. They've just totally abandoned the field. They're entirely derelict in their duty. And it, it brings to mind some of the things we've discussed when it comes to what could uncharitably be called a witch test. But if you make two offensive statements and one is outright blasphemous and one is simply strongly against the mores of our current culture, most people, and including most pastors, will react more strongly to the second. You can tell someone, Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. He is the first of creation. He is the greatest creation. And Christians will react to that. That's outright blasphemous if you say that seriously. They will react less strongly to that than if you say something that is simply not politically correct. And that's a very real problem in the church. Winsomeness is not the standard of what is true or what is right. Truth is, something is true or it is false, and it's not a matter of whether or not it is said in a pleasant way. And quite frankly, I think men in general should learn to be a little more combative when it comes to these things, perhaps locate, acquire a spine, whatever it takes. But specifically in the case of pastors, one thing that comes to mind when we're talking about this would be Ezekiel. And I'm sure any pastors listening probably already know what paragraph I'm about to read. And at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life. That wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. 
because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. Now, of course, this applies to Christian men generally, but this applies specifically to pastors, because pastors are the watchman, the shepherd for the house of Israel, for the church. And so they are going to be held to this standard. And so when there are things in scripture that they simply ignore, gloss over, refuse to talk about, shove under the rug, one day they will answer to God at the stricter judgment for what they did and what they failed to do. And that passage from Ezekiel, which Paul certainly knew well, is exactly what he was referencing in Acts 18 when he said, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. He, he knew what he was talking about. He was exactly. referring to that. He proclaimed the word of God faithfully, and those who rejected it are damned of their own accord. He did not fail in his duty in his office. He upheld it. And he upheld it by cursing them and by turning his back on them and by leaving and by going to the Gentiles who would ultimately hear him. The uh, the winsomeness question is is tied really directly to love and hate and how really the, the winsomeness question is a it's an emotional content question. It becomes not as you said not about truth or falsity. It becomes about did people someone's feelings get hurt? Because if someone's feelings got hurt, if they felt excluded or if they felt like they weren't understood, something really bad has happened. There's never any question that, well, did they lie? Did they deceive? Did they falsely speak about what God said? That should be the greater concern for the Christian because, yes, if you're harming someone emotionally in a way that causes them not to be able to hear the truth, you can certainly do that wrong. But the flip side of that is that if hearing the truth harms them emotionally, they're evil people, and you need to break them with the law, and that's going to hurt. When, when iron sharpens iron, there's sparks and there's heat. That's what should, should happen when men discuss these things, so that the truth may be proven by that which survives the discussion. And emotion and feelings shouldn't have anything to do with it. And yet, these, these questions get cloaked under the misapprehension of what love means. And this is this is really probably an episode unto itself, but just briefly, the the notion of Christian love today has been co-opted by Satan. You know, I've mentioned before the love is love slogan that basically encompasses all manner of sexual depravity under the sun. Think things that are are unthinkable and unrepeatable are called love. And it's hate if you don't uphold that sort of love. Well, is that from God? That's fundamentally the question, because love is one of the properties of God. It, it flows from him. God does not have love. God is love. It, it flows out of his nature. It is part of his nature. And the, the thing that Christians don't want to understand or don't even notice in Scripture is how frequently the polarity of the words that are being used makes clear what's going on. 
one example of this is in the Old Testament, there are various passages where God calls things abominations. And it's phrased in one of three ways. God will say that something is an abomination, period, or he will say it is an abomination unto him, or the third option is he will say it shall be an abomination unto you. And in those cases, he was referring specifically to the Israelites. Now, the first two are synonymous. For God to say that's an abomination or say that's an abomination to me means exactly the same thing. For God to say that's an abomination to you means something completely different. And this is made clear in Acts when Peter had the vision where God told him to kill and to eat unclean animals, and he was horrified. He said, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. Nothing has ever touched my lips that was unclean. And God said to him that everything that I have made is clean, which is consistent with what's said in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, that God saw that it was very good. God created nothing unclean. So when people, particularly non-Christians, or people who think they're Christian, but they don't really have the Holy Spirit when they're reading Scripture, when they look at those passages in Exodus in Leviticus and elsewhere, and see God saying that shellfish are unclean or abominations, or two kinds of fabric woven together are an abomination. They ignore the to whom, because in each of those passages where God is saying this created thing is an abomination, God says very specifically every time, this shall be an abomination unto you, O Israel. Now, what does that mean? Abomination, it's, t- it's tied to abhorrence. It's, it's tied to revulsion. The, the response that you should have to an abomination should be as though you just smelled a cadaver. It should be something so putrid and vile and contrary to your essence that you have to flee the room and try not to throw up. That's what an abomination is. Now, that's the reason that Peter had that response when God said, hey, eat this stuff. He, he was horrified. He wanted to flee. He wanted, he's like, I, don't, I would never do that. It's revolting. And God clarified that, no, that was within the ceremonial law to preserve Israel as a people unto himself, but it did not change the nature of shellfish or polyester or any of the other things that are used as memes today to either illustrate that God is capricious or to illustrate that Christianity is just stupid. When God says something is an abomination to him, it means exactly what I just said about putrescence in in a corpse. That is the reaction that we should all have to anything that is an abomination to God. And that includes things like sodomy. It includes things like usury, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Those things, God says, are an abomination unto him, that he is revolted by them. Now, that's the flip side of love. That is hate. Godly hate is against that which is contrary to God's nature. And it's a very crucial distinction that, that Christians don't really think about and don't understand. When we hear terms like love and hate, we hear emotion. We hear someone talking about feelings. That's not what God is talking about. He's not talking about feelings. When he says, I love something or I hate something, he is saying this thing is perfectly in accord with my nature and my desire, or he's saying the opposite. Now, when God so loved us, 
It was in spite of our fallen nature, but it was for that very reason that he gave us Christ's sacrifice on the cross so that covered in Christ's blood, we were restored to the perfect nature that he loved in the first place. So it's not contradictory to say that God hates us according to our sin and yet loves us according to who he made us to be. And God does hate our sin, and he hates us for sinning. And he also simultaneously loves us because we were created in his image before it fell. And he loved us so much that he sacrificed his only son on the cross to fix it. That is love. That is his love for us, and it is his love for creation. The hate is equally there. And when people, when Christians talk about hate, we don't really talk about it, not in a scriptural way, but we should think of hate in terms of that which is contrary to God's nature, that which is abhorrent. So when there is a sodomite on Twitter who is embraced and not criticized or whatever, like anything that God finds abhorrent, anything that is sinful, and that's the thing, like there are things that are particularly egregious to God. I think perhaps the the fruit of the of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is the first example of this. God it didn't use this this exact word, but he effectively said that fruit shall be an abomination to you. It's not for you. You don't touch it. It's not yours. It wasn't that it was was unclean, is that God had not given it to him. Perhaps he hadn't given it to him yet. We don't know what would have played out. Maybe that fruit would have given it to him after they'd been taught. We'll never know. Or maybe we'll know in 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 heaven, we're not going to know in this world because Adam went the other way. He embraced the abomination that God had had outlined, and he became an abomination to God by doing it. And God had to kill him. And God had to kill every one of us so that we would die, so that we could be redeemed. Because, and that's what that's what Genesis says. When God cast them out of the garden, it was so that they would die, both as punishment and to make their redemption possible. So the hatred of the evil and the love of the object of, of God's creation occur at the same time in the fallen world. And God's love is to redeem that which he hates according to his perfect nature and to remove all of the hateful things, all of the abominations from the world so that when the new heavens and the new earth are created, there will be only things which accord with God's perfect will. And there will be no more hate because there will be nothing left that is contrary to God's nature. And that's the fundamental distinction between love and hate. It's not emotional. It's whether or not something is contrary to God's eternal will. In the modern sense, in modern usage, the term love is very much akin, is of a kind with the the issue of winsomeness we were just discussing. Because love today what modern men mean when they use it, is permissiveness. It means, I let you do whatever makes you happy, makes you feel good, and you do the same in return. It's permissiveness. And of course, you're also supposed to approve of it because that approval additionally makes that person happy and feel good. And that's why it often comes up with the issue of sodomy. So Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. And so you mentioned the, uh, the revulsion that Christians should have to things that are an abomination, and normal men have an inherent revulsion to male homosexuality. 
And it is the kind of reaction that you have to, as you said, a corpse or rotting meat or rancid garbage. That is the actual visceral reaction that functioning men have to sodomy, to male homosexuality. And that is correct. That is how Christians should respond to these things. Because it is an abomination. In and of itself, it is a wicked, evil thing. It is something that God detests, that God hates. And so as Christians, we should hate it. Because we are supposed to hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves. And that's just not what is meant by love or even hate these days. Again, love is permissiveness and hate is just being mean. Because that's the cardinal sin. It's the, the cardinal virtue is niceness and the cardinal sin is being mean, is meanness. That's how the, the modern world functions. And that's just, that's nowhere in scripture. That's not it's how utterly, Christianity works. It's utterly feminized. Oh, yes, it's absolutely. That's why, well, that's why so many men leave the church, because if you have a pastor who stands up there and just tells you to be nice all day, what does that have to do with anything of any importance or value? If women want to be nice all day, fine, that's, that's different. There are different things in the nature of men, the nature of women, masculinity, femininity. But if Christianity is just be nice, I, I can get that anywhere else. Christianity is not a matter of being nice. It's a matter of the truth. It's a matter of we serve the one true God. That's what Christianity is. And again, we could, we could talk about the little games that modern translations play with doulos, because that is related to serving the one true God, but that's a discussion for another episode. Yeah. The, the niceness thing and the fact that girls are much more focused on harmony is a function of their domain. You don't Absolutely. want strife in your in your home. You want everyone to get along. You want there to be accord. You want there to be agreement. You want peace and quiet. And that's a blessing when you have it. Scripture's clear about that. But to apply those same rules to when there is a, a tranny drag demon story hour at your local library for children, the time for niceness is over. And it's not a domain for women to do anything. The women should stay home, and the men should go out and should get angry. They should be revolted. They should be filled with a righteous, perfect hatred. Scripture uses the term perfect hatred in uh, Psalm 1, I believe, 139, where, where it specifically talks about God's enemies. An enemy, friend-enemy thing is another thing that we just get wrong. Like, we're, we're living in a post- Mr. Rogers' version of Christianity, where Mr. Rogers went around and like his his catchphrase was, won't you be my neighbor? As though neighbor were a sort of sanctified emotional feeling or bond. That's pure nonsense. Neighbor has to do with your physical location. The, the question in the Good Samaritan parable, who is my neighbor, what did God say? He said, the guy who's right in front of you. It had nothing to do with the race of the man or the difference in their race. It was the fact that the man who was injured was directly in front of him. They were neighbors because they were adjacent. Those words are synonyms. And so when Mr. Rogers came along and said, well, anyone can be my neighbor if I like them, that's not what neighbor means. But that that shifting of the Overton window, like we talked about last week, well, suddenly everyone in the world is your neighbor. If you like them, if you're winsome, if you love them enough, 
then they're all your neighbors. And then the word means nothing. Because if the man 6,000 miles away is my neighbor, just as much as the man who lives 300 yards away, where is my duty? If my duty is equally to both of them, I can't do the same things for the man 6,000 miles away as the man 300 yards away. But that's what that premise is telling me. And where am I going to spend my energy? I'm going to focus on the guy further away because you know what? I can write checks and I can tweet and I can do really lazy stuff to help, quote unquote, that guy who's 6,000 miles away. Meanwhile, my neighbor has a broken leg and needs help around the house. And I didn't even know because I haven't got bothered to talk to him in three months. But since the guy in Africa is just as much as my neighbor as he is, and I'm doing something for the other guy, you know, I, I've done my job. I've taken care of my neighbor. No, that that's pure evil. That's that's a redefinition of a term that actually meant something. And when we let it cease to mean something, it opened the door for Satan. Uh, C.S. Lewis is a terrible theologian, and people who like him generally have awful theological views. But he was a decent <laughs> fiction writer. And yes, yeah. There's a there's a passage in the Screw Tape Letters that's brilliant where. The, the demon who was charged with trying to steal this man's soul did precisely this. He tried to make the man's affinity greater for the man who was so far away that he could never actually do anything for him than for the man right in front of him. Because the demon knew that that was the way to separate his soul from God. Because God wants you to look after the person right in front of you. It doesn't matter if you like them. It doesn't matter if, if you're different than them. If they're in front of you in that moment, they're your neighbor, and you take care of them in that moment. Now, that also doesn't imply that neighbor is a permanent state of affairs. When the Samaritan found the man on the road, he took him to an innkeeper and gave him some money and said, take care of the guy, I gotta go, and I'll pay you more if you need more when I come back. And they ceased to be neighbors. He did his duty to him by taking care of his physical needs, his immediate needs, but he didn't say, hey, come live in my house. You're, we'll, we'll be neighbors forever now. He's like, no. The, the adjacency, the physical proximity in that moment was God giving him a chance to obey God by tending to the one who is in need, just as God tends to all of our needs. That is the lesson. The lesson is absolutely not that every man on earth is my neighbor. Well, now we've gone and done it. We've attacked Mr. Rogers, and everyone loves him. But of course, they love him because they don't know anything about Christianity. And yeah. So they think that he was a great Christian because he was nice. Yeah. He's peak winsomeness. He's he's the poster child for winsomeness. He's what, yes. he's what everyone today thinks Christianity is supposed to look and sound like. And yes, he was meek, and he was gentle, and he was loving, loving to children. That's wonderful. That is good. But that is not the totality of the Christian life. If there's a drag queen story hour at your local library, you don't send Mr. Rogers. You send one someone who has all the qualities that, frankly, Mr. Rogers lacked because he was not a complete man. And maybe the man who can get pissed off and who can shout and get in someone's face is not also a complete man if he can also be gentle. But that doesn't make his qualities less sanctified, less Christian than the things that Mr. Rogers was missing. And again, these are the conversations that are that are missing from the Christian faith today, because as the Overton window was shifted and Christianity was subtly redefined to be about what's nice and what's loving, and as you said, utterly tolerant and permissive ways, 
where where Christianity means giving a license to the world to do that which it's already doing, and then kind of trying to explain, well, you know, maybe there's a better way. Like, no, what you're doing in your bedroom makes me puke. It's vile. And you, you had mentioned the the differences. When something is an abomination to God, that means it's contrary to nature. And there are numerous places in Scripture where it is made clear that even pagans understand this. And that's absolutely the case. You don't need to be a Christian to be revolted by the behavior of two sodomites if you see it. That is a human reaction, and it's not a sinful reaction. That's the distinction. We have, we have a human nature that is in accord with God's will, and we have a fallen nature that is the enemy of God's will. We have both of them simultaneously. Because while the image of God was damaged, it was not utterly removed. Our will is set against God's will by virtue of our sinful inheritance, but that doesn't make us utterly blind and deaf to God's will as it's manifest in creation. And so there are some things that are worse sins than others. The, the man who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has sinned. He has committed a damnable sin but he, because he desired that which was not his, because she's not his wife. So his sin is in accord with his nature as a man, and it is contrary to his sanctified nature because it was misdirected. So the the element that was a sin was not that he desired a woman, but he desired a woman who was not given to him. For a man to desire another man violates two different principles. One, he's desiring that which is not given to him. And two, he's desiring that which is fundamentally contrary to the nature of the universe, which is contrary to God's design. That is a far worse sin. And Christians need to understand that there are worse sins. Scripture is replete with examples where God says, the greater sin is yours, the lesser sin is yours. That doesn't mean that all sins are not damning. The sin that damns us all is that Adam ate the wrong piece of fruit. It's the least significant sin probably in the history of all sins. It's hard to sin a sin that's less sinful than that, and yet it damns us all. We all die because of it. So saying that one sin is more sinful than another is not saying that, well, you know, maybe that's okay. You can do that, and it's not a big deal. They're all a big deal. Some are worse deals than others. And if Christians cannot speak in that way, you cannot possibly reach the man who is behaving in a way that is destroying both his body and his soul, which is how, how Romans begins, that they were given over to their, their nature because it was so abhorrent. And it's okay for Christians to talk this way. It's necessary for Christians to talk this way appropriately at the right time and in the right place and with the right words. It is not okay for Christians to refuse to talk this way at all and to say, oh, well, you sin and I sin and we're all sinners. Thank God for Jesus. No, absolutely not. Some sins are worse than others, and they're physically destructive to those who are doing them. The man who looks at a girl with lust in his heart has sinned. He's not destroyed anything. All If he marries that girl, he can look at her with lust for the rest of his life, and that is perfectly sanctified obedience to God. The man who looks in with lust in his heart at another man can only ever bring destruction and damnation by that act. There's no possible way to sanctify it. 
it can only be sanctified by its complete destruction of the desire and of the sinful impetus to do that. There's no way in which that can be sanctified. The lust of a man for a woman is sanctified when it is with the bounds of matrimony. And that's the fundamental difference. And to say that all sins are equal is to deny one of the central tenets of the faith. This goes back to what we were talking about in past episodes about the the Lutheran focus on justification. We get sanctification right, and then we kill everything else in the Christian life with it. Yes, if you sin once, if you if you don't quote-unquote sin at all, but you were born with sin, you're still damned. That's not the proper way to look at it, but some people think that way. Even if, even for, if for the sake of argument, a man lived a perfect life, because he was born a man, he would still be damned because he inherited sin. And yet the sins that occur in the human life can be worse. Some can be worse than others. And if we can't speak in that way, we can't warn those of their tremendous wickedness. It, it goes back to, to what Jesus said when he sent the 12 out. That passage said, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, that's Jesus testifying to the fact that some, some sins are worse than others. The sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were worse than the sins of their neighbors. You can tell because God didn't destroy their neighbors. Those cities were wiped off the map and not other cities. It was a worse sin, and it was destroyed in that manner. And yet God says that these towns that reject his apostles are even more wicked than Sodom and Gomorrah because they have heard the word and they have refused to, to believe, and that is a worse sin than an abomination. That is how Christians speak of these things. And that actually touches on one of two ways in which it should be incredibly obvious for Christians that certain sins are worse than others. If you reject the gospel, what are you violating? You're violating the first table. If you are sexually abusing your neighbor, you're violating the second table. The Ten Commandments are hierarchical. Violating the ones higher up the list is worse than violating the ones further down the list. So it is worse to have a false god than it is to steal from your neighbor. That should just be obvious to the Christian. And even to the pagan, it should be obvious that it is worse to murder your neighbor than to steal his cow. So we know this. This is obvious to just human beings. It's obvious to everyone. But also in scripture, there is the unforgivable sin. Well, it's pretty obvious the sin that cannot be forgiven is worse than all of the ones that can be forgiven. So there is at least one sin that's worse than all the others. But again, there is a hierarchy. There are sins that are worse than other sins. And there are parts of hell that are worse than other parts of hell. Yes, one sin is sufficient to send you to hell for eternity, if you are not forgiven and in Christ. But again, there are worse parts of hell. You would much rather be in the least terrible part than the most terrible part, whatever that happens to be. And you mentioned the imago dei and the nature of man and what original sin does, and because that gets botched in a lot of traditions, I'll actually add to the show notes, the Book of Concord handles that at length, does a very good job of explaining what is the nature of man, what is the corruption of the nature of man post-fall. And so I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. So next we're going to talk about uh, usury. This is uh, one of the commandments that was given in the Old Testament. 
and then was upheld in in the New Testament church and was it's an example of one of the earlier doctrines that was practiced for a long time and then was abandoned. So we're trying to kind of go in order. So we began with shaking the dust off your feet. <clears throat> Jesus commanded it, the apostles obeyed it, and then we don't really couldn't find a record of anyone obeying it after that. Um usury was something that basically in the Old Testament usury when a Christian speaks of it historically there is no distinction whatsoever between usury and charging interest. In other words, if I give you a hundred dollars and I expect you to give me a hundred dollars back, that's a loan. If I expect you to give me a hundred and five dollars back, that's a loan and it's also usury. What God says to the Israelites is that that is prohibited to do among yourselves. Now, he did make the exception that it was permissible for the Israelites, for the Hebrews, to charge interest to aliens, which I think actually illustrates the fact that it is an element of warfare. There, there are many things that, that God permitted his people to do to aliens that were fundamentally destructive and hostile. Hostile. And usury is one of them. Charging interest is one of them. Now, it's interesting that God prohibited usury among the Hebrews because it was common well well before their day, um, or, or contemporaneous to them. Uh, the, the Code of Hammurabi and other contemporaneous records demonstrate that the charging of interest was was common in the in the old in, you know, fifteen hundred BC. It was it was typical. Um, some of the very first records we have are financial records that were preserved, and we can see the interest payments. So we actually have we have better documentation of the type of usury that was employed by pagan nations than in some cases we have about their religions, because the usury required adequate record keeping. Uh, well, which is we kind it, of do know their religion then. <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean that's that's really what it boils down to. It's and the the percentages are noteworthy. Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting when you look back to you know 1500 BC, and so the interest rates that were typical were tip were usually like 12 to 20 percent, which is funny because that's literally the typical interest rate range for a credit card today. So in 4,000 years of human history when interest is being charged, it's pretty much always been in the same range. Um, and what God does is he condemns that out of hand and says that you it's an abomination, you're not to do that to your brother. When some of the early philosophers in, in the West tack tackled the subject, uh, Aristotle and others, they actually objected on principle to the charging of interest on philosophical grounds. They took the approach that, correctly, that money is a medium of exchange. It's not inherently productive. <clears throat> it's only made productive by the work that someone does with it. And so their their premise was that if I give you $100 and I say I want $105 back, the money didn't reproduce. The money is sterile. And if I'm asking for $5 more than you gave me, I'm effectively stealing from you. That was the, the philosophical approach that was taken. 
<clears throat> and it's one that was generally held in the early church from from the Council of Nicaea up basically through Thomas Aquinas. That was more or less the view in most of the Christian church was that Christians should not charge interest to other Christians. It wasn't, and it wasn't seen as as Judaizing. It wasn't seen as, well, here's this one Old Testament law that we're just going to keep around. Um, it was that there was understood that there was a principle, again, the, the principle of harm being done, that it would be excluded. You, you wouldn't do this harm to your brother. You can do it to an alien. Well, it was and, seen as moral law, not ceremonial or civil law for Israel. And so it was retained into the, the New Testament church. Yeah, I and you'd mentioned in prep that the the Lateran Council, I believe, called it a heresy. Yeah, I mean, it, it was called a heresy, and those who practiced it were denied a Christian burial. Which in some cases would have meant you had to be buried outside the city like unclean garbage. This wasn't something that the, the church, this was not a an ancillary issue or something out on the fringe. This was just something that was at the heart of Christianity, and we all agreed this was a sinful vile, evil practice, and we will not engage in it. Now, of course, that changes when we get to the Middle Ages, as we'll get into in a minute, but that was the consensus of the church for well over a thousand years. Yeah. Before you get into the history, I just want to briefly mention a passage from Luke 6 where Jesus is, is preaching. He says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that for you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High." For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. So while that doesn't directly discuss usury, the charging of interest, it is worth noting that when Jesus said even sinners do this, he was talking about lending, simply to receive back that which you had been given. Now, again, back to the philosophical point about the sterility of money, if you asked to borrow my chainsaw because you have you need to do a bunch of clearing on your on your property, and you don't return your chain my chainsaw for a year. When the year elapses and you return the chainsaw, it would be insane for me to demand that you give me two chainsaws. You'd stare at me like like I had two heads. And yet, if I give you a hundred dollars and you come back a year later, it's today in our minds it's seen as perfectly reasonable that I would ask for more than I lent. And Jesus is commanding the Christian, not only should we not ask for more than we're lent, but we should forgive our debts as we wish God to forgive our debts. That if you have someone who to whom you've given something, expect nothing in return. And therefore, if he gives you something in return, you had been blessed, and he has been blessed by doing something good to you. But if he doesn't give you anything back, if he keeps the money that you lent to him, wipe the slate clean. That is the the essence of the Christian teaching on finance, which goes a million miles away from whether or not you should charge interest. And it goes directly to the fact that if you give someone something, 
don't expect a back period. And this is in the, this is in the Lord's Prayer. And I, I kind of regret that we replaced get, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors with forgive us our trespasses, because they mean the same thing. They're different connotations slightly, but fundamentally, sin is debt. When Christ paid the price for our cross, you know, listen to that language. It's the language we use every time we speak about this. Christ paid the price for our sin on the cross. He didn't pay an infinite price for infinite sins. He paid, he paid the specific price for the specific sins the specific sinners committed in time, both before and after and even during his crucifixion. So this is why the, the Eastern Orthodox rejection of penal substitutionary atonement is so fundamentally evil, because they fundamentally deny that there is a price to be paid, and therefore they deny that Christ paid it. Because if there was no price, then there are EOs that actually say that Jesus died on the cross because it made the story more dramatic, that there was no, there was no pay, price to be paid there, because God isn't a God with a ledger. Well, Scripture is abundantly clear that there is a ledger, both of our names and of the sins that we've committed against God, and they're each accounted for individually. Now, again, as we say in every episode, we get into these dangerous areas. That's not to suggest that works righteousness is in play. No Christian will ever believe that he can make up for even one of his sins, just as Adam couldn't make up for eating the wrong piece of fruit. And yet, the ledger that includes the sins, all of them were checked off on the cross simultaneously and for all time. God paid, Christ paid the eternal price in three hours on the cross because he's God. He can absorb an infinity in a finite time because he is above and beyond all human comprehension. Nevertheless, the price, the specific price, just like there's a price tag on a piece of fruit, the price was paid. We may as well take the opportunity to cover how the the ledger works in this case, because some people will undoubtedly listen and be in churches that do not teach this clearly. And so how this works is God's ledger tracks all of your sin and all of your works. For the Christian, the sins are not counted against you because Christ paid the full price of sin for everyone on the cross. And so your sins are blotted out, your works remain. Your works are counted as good because you are in Christ. Therefore, you do get credit for your good works. But again, the sins are blotted out. Now, in the case of the unbeliever, it is the inverse. Your sins remain because you are not in Christ and you have chosen to pay the price for those sins in eternity because the debt of sin is infinite. Hell is infinite. You will be there forever paying back the price, the debt of those sins. And your works count for nothing because the status of the person who does the works matters. Sinners cannot have good works. If you are a sinner, not in Christ, and you go out and feed the homeless, that's a good work. You don't get credit because of your status as a sinner, not in Christ, not forgiven. And so it is only Christians whose good works are counted. And so that's how this actually works in reality. And you mentioned the, I have to plug German because of course, but 
You mentioned the fact that we use forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I like that in German it's schuld, and schuld is both trespass, guilt, debt, obligation. It's all of it in one term, and so you, you don't have to choose between the two, as we've sort of had to do in English. My father was taught it, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, but obviously most Lutherans use trespass and trespassers. But again, that's a good illustration of the fact that it's the same thing. It's the same. It is thing. absolutely They're... yes. It's the same. It's the same conception. It's just in modern parlance, we've pared down the senses of trespass and trespasser, and so we we don't think of the fullness of what the term means. It was chosen because it does actually mean the fullness of the concept in scripture. It's just to modern ears, we don't typically hear all of that. We should. Pastors and teachers need to teach people so that they know that. And if you read scripture, it's incredibly obvious. The legal language is everywhere. It's spoken of God as judge, and it's his courtroom, and there's a ledger, and there's a record, and there's evidence, and this is a legal issue. And yes, as mentioned, the EO hate that. They say the West is too legalistic and too rationalistic. And No, we're just quoting scripture. God is your judge. Judges have a courtroom. Courts have prosecutors and defenders, and you hear evidence, and there are convictions. That's how this works. And there are penalties. There are specific penalties that are tailored to the crime. Which in this case is infinite, because the person harmed is God, and so infinite. We'll get into that another time. That's philosophical. So even up to the time of Thomas Aquinas, it was just settled a settled matter in the church that you did not charge interest, at least when it came to Christians and others within your own nation, even to non-Christians in your own nation. Members of other nations, there was still some debate on that, because obviously in the Old Testament and Deuteronomy, you're permitted to charge foreigners' interest, Deuteronomy 23. But one of the examples given by Thomas Aquinas, one of the reasons he argued against it was saying it would be like charging twice. It would be like charging a man for a bottle of wine and then charging him again when he wants to drink. But where things started to go off the rails, and I know somewhere there's probably a papist listening who's going to be incredibly gleeful and clap, but don't do it too quickly because it comes back around. It goes off the rails a little bit before the Reformation, actually, but Luther whiffs this one a bit, but Calvin is really the one who opens the door to the modern practice of usury. It seems like what Luther was doing was trying to take a conservative, but not a hardline stance, which is notable and odd for Luther, but a conservative stance with regard to the charging of interest. Because in his day, you had the beginnings of a market economy starting up, you had the expansion of the economy, you had more trade, and so merchants were charging interest. They were setting terms on their contracts and things like this. Calvin sort of took the position that merchants could set the terms on their contracts, and so there was some level of interest they could charge. Luther was trying to, again, take a conservative position with regard to debates the scholastics had been having. They settled on this 5% figure, I don't actually remember, or I couldn't find why, but there was a lot of wrangling over 5% interest was the number they decided on. And so he was taking a conservative position with regard to that, 
and trying to limit how much interest was charged. He still had comments that were very much against any charging of interest, basically calling it all usury. But this is where we start to see less of the hardline stance against all interest of all kinds. And from there, it's rapidly downhill once the philosophers and the economists get a hold of it and the church starts listening to them instead of to the word of God. I think it's important to know that <clears throat> that during in the in the medieval period there were periods of time where interest was permissible again never among christians but this is when the jews became inextricably linked to banking because the prohibition was on christians not charging interest jews were permitted to charge interest because well if they're going to hell anyway why you know let them do their thing because people wanted money lent to them and there may be someone who will lend money to you at interest who would not lend it to you, particularly as a Christian, where you're obligated to Jesus to not expect to be paid back. And so what happened in the, the medieval period was that kings and other potentates wanted to fight their wars, and they wanted to build their palaces, and they needed to finance it. And so it became increasingly normal off on the periphery, not necessarily Christians lending but Christians relieve, receiving that which was lent from the Jewish bankers to facilitate war. And so I think it's notable that the, the first cracks that appeared in Christendom giving up the moral stance were fundamentally around dealing with unbelievers permissively and fighting and waging wars and doing other things that should not have been done. You wouldn't have done it with your own money. But if you can borrow somebody else's at interest, suddenly it becomes a thing that's permissible. I think that while that doesn't directly speak to the the moral tenory, tenor of usury or interest itself, it's some interesting color to to consider because it only those things are always connected. Yeah, that is absolutely worth mentioning. And we could also point out that the prohibition on usury is not unique to Christianity but it is unique to Christianity and cults that have sprung up as cancerous cysts from Christianity. So Islam prohibits usury. But of course, the, the Jews were permitted to charge usury because they were looking at Deuteronomy 23 and saying, these Christian foreigners were allowed to charge them, which is, of course, an admission they're worshiping a different god. And it's an argument for not having non-Christians in your country because these things happen. We won't, of course, let the noblemen off the hook, the kings who use this scheme to get around the word of God, because that's all they were doing. The word of God doesn't say, don't sin unless you hire another man to sin for you. That's also a sin. In fact, that's a collection of sins. It's not better. Don't do that. And so they should not have done what they did. But at any rate, we get into the modern times and Something that's worth noting, Chemnitz, the second Martin, as he has been called, has a treatise on usury, condemning it, of course. The problem is you do not get to read it unless you know Latin or German, because the volumes of Chemnitz that have been translated, and it's not a cheap collection, but Concordia Publishing House has this, it does not include the treatise on usury. It also doesn't include the treatise on revenge and a few other things. Noteworthy and strange that these things have been omitted. 
and I don't think they're it's, even tran. I don't think there are plans to translate them. It's not just they were omitted. I don't think there's a plan to add additional volumes at present. And you had mentioned that they even omitted it from the index. So if if you only knew English, yeah, the term's not even would, there. Yeah, you would never have any idea that Chemnus ever wrote anything about usury, which is fascinating because. CPH is the captive arm of the LCMS for publishing. The LCMS also has another captive arm, the LCEF, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Guess what they do? They're a bank, effectively. Not They're not chartered as a bank, but they're a lender. They lend to churches at interest. Now, it's low-interest loans, relatively, in theory, but we have come so far from what was his, the historic practice of believers to now we have a church which is refusing to acknowledge that the discussion ever took place by omitting it from the Chemnitz volume and actively engaging in what in the Old Testament was unequivocally usury. To charge interest to a Christian is usury, period. The only argument then that could be made is, well, yeah, but it's permissible. And yet we don't even have the argument because, again, as the theme of this episode, it's not even a question. It was in the Bible, and then it just sort of fell away. And now it didn't fall away from the church. It took 1,500 years or so for the church to really get rolling and modernizing and saying, well, I guess maybe that's not a sin anymore. Maybe it was never a sin. Do we really know if it's a sin? Did God really say and so they spilled a lot of ink on that question. And finally, we're to the point today where not only does no one ask the question, but the church is charging the church itself interest on loans for things like building churches, <laughs> which I only laugh. It's because absolutely I, ridiculous. I, I, I Wicked. If, if it had never happened, I don't think I could possibly script a fiction as evil as what we're doing today by the, by the plain words of Scripture. So, again, the, the, the point of this episode is, where did this stuff go? Now, in this case, as, as I mentioned, we're kind of going in chronological order. We, we kind of lost usury a while ago, and, you know, Luther, Luther, Luther ate it. He, he didn't really get well, it right. Luther, Luther whiffed it. However, it is worth pointing out, the Lutheran Church didn't actually go with Luther on this one, because, of course, it's not in our confession. We are not bound to believe this. Up until the early 1900s, at least in the U.S., the Lutheran Church stood against usury. We have writing from Pieper and Walter condemning it. So we got this one right. It was only in, I don't know if it was the 40s, the 50s, or the 60s, but it was in the last, within the last you know, 80 years or so, that this started to slip away in the Lutheran Church. Which makes sense, because we found the, the footnote from uh, the Synodical Convention and no, it was 1893 where they were still arguing over whether life insurance, insurance would be permissible. Yeah, whether whether insurance of any kind, property insurance, whether that was immoral because it wasn't trust in God. So it's not a stretch to think that our Lutheran fathers in the LCMS would be pretty surprised to learn that there's a lending arm charging churches at interest to build churches. Um, and yet that's how quickly morality changes. I mean— Getting back to a recurring theme, God doesn't change. Morality doesn't changes, doesn't change. Doctrine is changing, not because doctrine is being developed, 
but because scripture is being abandoned when the whole counsel of God needs white out when there are things that we're ashamed of that is when we really have to seriously question whether we're even the church anymore not even not in the big C way even in a little C are we are we a Christian church if we are adopting these these beliefs um, the next one I want to get onto is is a much more recent one and it also follows on the heels of developments from warfare so while it wasn't necessarily seen as a strictly moral code in all cases it was generally just the norm it, like it was it was it was such an essential element of a christian nation that it was almost unthinkable that a girl would work outside of the home she would be productive within the home because as god created her she is a helpmeet helping your husband is going to naturally be productive and not only in case of child child rearing there are things that are done around the house that are that are productive for the sake of what the man is doing particularly because jobs used to be also in the home like the man the, the idea of a man going off to a factory 30 miles away is is a very modern thing the man's work and the woman's work were usually yards apart so her being a helpmeet and her doing work that was productive was always in support of what the man did and then we came to world war ii where we sent so many men overseas and we had so many men working in factories there were there were shortages and so what happened we quickly normalized not coincidentally girls leaving their homes young girls older women going into the factories either to make bombs or to do math for calculating artillery tables but by the hundreds of thousands and by the millions, women left their homes and they began doing jobs that had been limited to men prior to World War II. And then when World War II ended, the status quo ante wasn't restored. There were a lot of women that were like, you know what, I'm making more money. If, if, if my husband can come home or if I can marry a man who's going to earn and I can earn too, wow. Look, look how quickly we can get ahead with all this cash flow. And so it became normalized, again, through warfare, that girls would just work outside the home. And so there was a, a tweet a couple days ago from uh, another LCMS pastor who's uh, familiar to both you and I for unspecified reasons, Dan uh, Ross, who's a, he's a pastor in the absolute whitest part of Oklahoma, Yet somehow he's a very vehement anti-racist crusader. It's funny. The part of Oklahoma he lives and works in is so white that even in Oklahoma, it's a joke how white the place is. So I love the idea of him pointing at other people and saying, you're racist, when by every measure of racism, simply living in such a place is itself racism. So he's a known quantity, but he uh, he decided to, Dan decided to step into the ring yesterday with this bold claim or two days ago, he, he tweeted, wives can work full-time jobs outside the home. They can be the main breadwinners, and husbands can be stay-at-home dads. This doesn't violate scripture. Now, this isn't just a guy tweeting. This is a pastor. He's rostered. He's credentialed. I believe he has an actual MDiv instead of one of the, the fake degrees like some of the other guys. So to his credit, he probably actually knows Greek and Hebrew, but it doesn't stop him from saying the opposite of what scripture says. Let's see what happens in Titus 
with regard to women outside the home. Titus responds, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slave to much wine. They, meaning the older women, are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. I had someone dispute with me yesterday on on Twitter whether the passage, the, the part of that that said, women are to work from home, whether it applied only to older women, which was the claim that was made. If you when go read it yourself, this is the end of Titus 1 and the beginning of Titus 2. There are clearly two sections. There's a section that says older men are to be sober-minded, and it parallels with what older, older women are to be effectively the same. And then it specifically tells older women to teach younger women a series of things. Everything that's listed after that point is what the older women are to teach the younger woman, and that includes working at home. And the reason I included the last par- the last sentence is it says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Likewise, urge shows that the likewise urge of the older women to the younger women encapsulates every single word of that. So Titus is explicit. It is explicit. They are to teach and train the young women to work at home. That's not a paraphrase. I'm just alighting the section so you can see of that one element. Younger women are to work from home. And the reason? That the word of God may not be reviled. So when a pastor says, that doesn't violate scripture, what is he doing? He is reviling scripture. He's he's literally doing that which is damned. So when Dan says that doesn't violate scripture, he's He's, he's plainly lying about what Scripture says. And the reason he's lying is that he's ashamed. He's ashamed of Scripture. It's not, it's not cool anymore. There's some stuff in there that's pretty cringe. It's, it's stuff that, you know, I was talking to a friend yesterday. We were talking about the, the doctrine of closed communion. And he described the, the approach that a lot of pastors have when explaining closed communion to a visitor where they basically act like an embarrassed assistant manager in a store apologizing for for store policies that he's not really responsible for. He's like, you know, these guys are just kind of hard about this stuff, and you and I both know it's silly, but we got to follow the rules. That's how a lot of these guys are with all of Scripture. And so Dan is lying about Titus, and he's lying about the rest of Scripture because he finds it embarrassing. And in that thread, he went on to accuse another man that I've gotten to know on Twitter um, who was refuting him. I, the, the guy was saying, giving a number of reasons. And Dan's responses were that that's misogyny, that's sexism, you're a chauvinist, you're importing this stuff, and you're calling this stuff Christianity. Those were his rebukes to a man who was pointing to Scripture. Now, listen to what Jesus says in Luke 9. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now what Jesus says in Luke 9 is that Dan Ross is damned. If he doesn't repent of his shame for what God says, he will go to hell. And I, I looked up what the, the word shame there just to make sure that, you know, it wasn't a mistranslation or something that, that couldn't be defended. And it gets even better when you when you look at the Greek word that's used there in a couple other times, it's related to disgrace or dishonor. And that's exactly what's going on here. Jesus is saying, if these men are disgraced by what I have said in scripture, I will be disgraced of them. Now, as Christians, we don't like to hear that the law applies to us. When, when Scripture says you did something wrong, we always want to think, well, that must be the other guy. And so I thought for a while about this passage in, in Luke 9 because the way that it's phrased, it's easy for Christians to think, well, that doesn't apply to me. But if you consider who could be ashamed of Jesus' words, what does it mean to be ashamed of anything? To be ashamed of something implies some sort of proprietary interest. It, it implies a degree of possession. So there are three non-overlapping categories of human beings in the world. There are pagans who have never heard a lick of the Word of God. They have only natural revelation. They have no idea what God has ever said. This can't apply to them, because how can they be disgraced by words that they've never heard? The second category of people are pagans who have heard the word, the word to some degree, and they just don't believe it. They they never have faith. So, you know, maybe they've read some of scripture, or they've heard it, or they've argued about it on, on the internet, but it was never theirs. Are they being ashamed of scripture and of Jesus' words? No, because it has no nexus to their lives. They're mocking and deriding something alien to them. But Jesus isn't talking about the unbeliever who's heard the word because they couldn't possibly be ashamed or disgraced by it. It's not theirs. Jesus is speaking to people who claim to be Christians, who claim the word of God, who say, yeah, this is mine. This scripture, the, the, the Bible, the word of God belongs to me because I'm a Christian. And Jesus says something that we leave out of our creeds and we leave out, leave out of our confessions, except by inference, which is this passage, that if you say that you're mine, but you are disgraced by what I say, I'm not going to recognize you on Judgment Day. You say, Lord, Lord, did we not do X, Y, and Z? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. And he's talking about Dan Ross, and he's talking about all these other pastors who, when these questions come up online, they don't say, well, let's see what Scripture says. They lie, and they say, Scripture says nothing. There's Dan, Dan let me read that again. Dan says, wives can work full-time jobs outside the home. They can be breadwinners, and husbands can be stay-at-home dads. This doesn't violate Scripture. That could not be possibly more contradictory to Titus 2. Dan Ross is a damned liar if he doesn't repent. And I don't say this to pick on him. I say this as an example of the sort of thing that is occurring within the church without pushback. There's not a single pastor, when I, when I called attention to this, what was said, there will never be a pastor who will speak out publicly. Because as we mentioned previously, the LCMS has banned pastors from criticizing other pastors and our bylaws. You can get kicked out for doing that. 
Apparently, you can't get kicked out for denying scripture because these guys do this all the time. But if you criticize another man and you cause a stink and you get hurt feelings by saying what God says, then you're actually in jeopardy. And for a pastor, that means potentially losing his income and losing his parsonage and his children not being able to eat. So I understand the motivation. I I'm not excusing it, but I'm saying I understand why a man would want to just pretend this didn't happen, just keep on walking. <laughs> Cuz I'm not his neighbor. You know, it's you cross by the other side of the road and pretend like the none of the slander and stuff other ever happens. But it is happening and it's a denial of scripture. And it's a denial of scripture by men who are ordained and are told to the world, this is a man who speaks for Jesus. Dan gets up every Sunday and says, or should say, or at least implies by his conduct in the church service, that he stands in the stead and by the command of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And for a man to make that claim and say that scripture says girls can work outside the home is plainly false. Now, again, I'm not saying that the question of to what degree a girl may have income is, we're not talking about equations. We're not talking with, with usury, with all of these things. We're not talking about a set of rules and math. We're focusing on the fact that the church used to do one thing and people used to believe one thing and then we stopped believing it. And then we went a step further and we say that this, the word of God doesn't say what it says it says. Are we still Christians? Is it a Christian church that will do that, that will engage in that? And when a man comes along and raises these questions as we are, rather than shouting him down and saying the worst things imaginable about him, is it worth having the conversation? Is, that, is it worth the question, does Scripture actually say anything about how women should conduct themselves and pastors should conduct themselves and men should conduct themselves? If Scripture is not silent... Is it an acceptable part of Christian discourse for us to have these conversations? I say yes. Corey, you say yes. We're doing this because it is not happening to the degree that it should be. And the fact that there is silence everywhere else is a clear indication to me that we are becoming, if not in fact already, an apostate church, even while we have the creeds and we have the confessions. Because as I said at the beginning, these, these things, they're not necessarily seminal doctrines, but they're in there. And the fact that they weren't talked about a lot in the past is because they were so obviously a fundamental part of the Christian faith that it was just part and parcel. If you're a Christian nation, you didn't have usury. You didn't have women working out the side of the home. You didn't need a bunch of doctrinal treatises because it just didn't happen. It was only once people started saying, did God really say that the discourse began and the, the arguments and the discussions. And now today, the discussions are forbidden because the not that the question has been settled, but that the question has been nullified. The question is no longer a permissible question because it upsets people. It gets feelings hurt. It's not winsome to say, well, maybe, Dan, you, if your wife works out the home, I don't, I don't know if she does. She probably does, but they almost all do. Like, there are a lot of good pastors whose wives work outside the home. Am I saying that they're all sinning? Yes. Am I angry at them? No. It's concern. It's, the, it's concern at the fact that we as a church, we as Christians, are living lives with clean consciences when our consciences shouldn't be clean. 
if God said something and we just ignore it and we pretend it's not there or we attack it and say we're ashamed and disgraced by it, are we Christian? I, I it's, a, it's a question that you and I, Corey, struggle in private conversation all the time. Like, what do you do with a man who will continuously conduct him this way, himself this way, in the face of Scripture? And increasingly, when these guys say that we don't have the same God, I believe them. I, we have I to will agree. Say, yeah. I, I, I have to agree. I, I've, if I say what Scripture says clearly, and what, what the church has always or almost always done, and these guys say something different, what is my guidepost? What are we as Christians to do with that? They want you to believe the pastor because he's got a collar. I want to believe God because I don't want to go to hell, and I want to be a creature who obeys the Creator who has given me everything, including pastors, to teach these things. It's not that I'm trying to do an end run about God's created around God's created order. It's that his created order is being usurped by wolves who lie about God, and that is a crisis. It's a crisis that needs to be dealt with, and that's why we're talking. Well, and we've been incredibly clear. Neither one of us is a pastor. However, we are teachers. No, we don't have degrees, but Christianity is not a matter of which degrees you have acquired. Yes, we do agree with seminary education and formal education. We are both educated, of course, but we do agree with these things as part of proper order, but it is not absolutely required. And when no one else is standing up and saying the things that need to be said, it falls to all men in the church to do so. So if we weren't doing it, those of you who are listening, it would be incumbent on you to do it instead. And so a tree is known by its fruit. What is the fruit of these pastors, of these men, to abuse the term? Well, we know young men are leaving the churches in droves, and they are not coming back because the church has been turned into something other than the church. It has become some sort of social club where you go and hear that Jesus loves you, sing a little bit, and go home. Maybe the sacrament is in there at some point. Hopefully, at least with Lutheran churches, it still is, although some still don't practice it weekly, but that's another discussion for another day. And so you drive young men away. Well, if you're driving young men away, young men are supposed to be the heads of future households, or if they're already married, the head of that household. And so if you drive them away, you are either not going to wind up having Christian households formed, or you're going to wind up with a church full of women who don't get married or get married to unbelievers. And so obviously what these men, what they're doing, it's obviously wicked because the options are the tree is known by its fruit. Well, we know this is a poisonous tree because it has poisonous fruit or God lied when he said his word doesn't return to him void. God lied when we have all these blessings. When, we, when David says, I believe that I will look on the good of the Lord in the land of the living. The church is anything but blessed today, and that is incredibly obvious if you look at what is happening. And so there is something dangerously wrong in the modern church. And as mentioned, these doctrines, many of them look like minor things, and they are in fact minor compared to the major doctrines. Yes, it is worse to get justification wrong than to get usury wrong. But Satan is crafty, and Satan knows if he comes out with a full frontal assault on justification, 
Okay, fine, Rome will fall for it, but the rest of us won't. So he won't do that, because you don't attack your enemy full on. You attack his flank, you attack him where he's weak, you sneak in behind. That's how you win in a battle, and that is exactly what Satan is doing. And so he'll find a minor doctrine, or he'll find a minor doctrine plus an opportunity because of the current state of the world. So, for instance, we mentioned the world wars. Well, we need women to work because we don't have a large enough workforce. Well, now we've set the precedent, so now women can just work outside the home. And, of course, we could talk about the actual economic fallout of that and no. You don't actually get twice the income. You get significantly less income because that's how economics works. But different discussion, perhaps for a different podcast. And so Satan attacks these seemingly minor doctrines. And that's his toehold. And that's all he needs. Because once you seed that, you've actually seeded a major doctrine already. Because you have seeded that you truly believe Scripture is the Word of God. Because if you think that you are free to ignore anything in Scripture, then you do not believe it is the Word of God. You have rejected the author of Scripture by rejecting the nature of Scripture. And that is where we are today. And that is the reason we bring up these minor issues and why we'll continue to do podcasts of episodes of this type to address these seemingly minor issues. Because you cannot abandon a square inch of territory to Satan. Because that's all he needs. And so to wrap up, I want to mention just briefly, we won't go into too much detail on it, head coverings for girls in church. <clears throat> it's obviously a minor point. It's a, it's a question that really was forgotten, like in, in my lifetime. I haven't heard it discussed elsewhere uh, until fairly recently, when, when, as we had alluded to in some a couple recent episodes, that there's an increasing number of Zoomers and Millennials, both young men and w young women and married couples who are beginning to head cover. The wives are covering their heads in church, and it's making people uncomfortable. It's making people uncomfortable because it looks anachronistic. And it raises a question that no one wants to ask, let alone answer. So I was actually shocked by this. I didn't, I didn't know until I was doing the research for this part of the episode where head covering was lost in a Christian church. I knew it was fairly recent, you know, kind of from photographs and stuff, but I had no idea. So in the spirit of the genealogy of ideas, let me give you the, a brief genealogy here. Betty Frieden was born Betty Naomi Goldstein on February 4, 1921 in Peoria, Illinois, to Harry and Miriam Horowitz Goldstein, whose Jewish families were from Russia and Hungary. In 1966, Frieden Goldstein was instrumental in the founding and success of the National Organization of Women, or NOW. In 1968, NOW became the first national organization to endorse the legalization of abortion. Now, you've probably heard some of that. Maybe you didn't know she was Jewish or you don't care. You don't think that means anything. It's not relevant to this discussion. It will be for, for a future episode. But listen to what else Betty Frieden Goldstein did in 1968 with the National Organization for Women. Resolution on head coverings. Whereas the wearing of a head covering by women at relig religious services is a custom in many churches 
And whereas it is a symbol of subjection, subjection it, within these churches, now recommends that all chapters undertake an effort to have all women participate in a national unveiling by sending their head coverings to the task force chairman immediately. At the spring meeting, the task force on women in religion, these, will, these veils will then be publicly burned to protest the second-class citizen of women in all the churches. Now, holy cow. 1968. That's living memory. That means that the boomers in our con congregations who might be startled and, and act like they've never seen a veil before, when they were kids, they were veiling. <laughs> they had to be because everyone was doing it, and even now recognized that it was the custom in many churches. It was normal. And as one of the most conservative bodies in the, in the country, it was certainly normal among, among confessional Lutherans. So what happened? The Jewish lady in, in charge of creating the National Organization for Women, who was personally responsible for setting off the firestorm that caused abortion to be legalized, the mass murder of children, simultaneously in the same year, incinerated veils in our churches. Now, the reason that I mention this is that today, when the discussion of veiling, which is just, it's, we're just at the cusp of this discussion actually being had in our churches. Any pastor you talk to, when you say, hey, there's, I'm not going to read the whole thing because we're getting long on time. Go read 1 Corinthians 11. There's an extensive passage there where God discusses the nature of men and women and the headship of a man over a woman as of Christ over the church and the symbol of submission and piety that the veil represents and how it is commanded for girls to cover their heads in church. That's in Scripture, plainly, unequivocally. Now, when you talk to a pastor or most Lutherans who are trying to be pious, and you say, hey, this thing in Scripture says that we should be doing this practice, the immediate, almost guaranteed response is going to be to say, well, let's go look back at 60 AD and see what the cultural context was. Let's go see what environment Paul was talking in. Now, there are times when that's the right question. Is it the right question for veiling? No, it is utterly duplicitous. The right question for veiling is when did it go away? And the answer is it went away 50 years ago. It went away after 1968 because that was just the kickoff. That was the very first time that there had been an open, overt attack on girls veiling their heads in church, specifically to liberate them from the subjugation by men. That was the entire that's, point. That's the key point right there is yeah. the adversary knew exactly what he was doing and Precisely. why. And so it happened after that. It was, it, was, it was in the 70s that this stuff went away. And here, just 50 years later, suddenly we have to go all the way back to the first century church to try to understand it? No. Well, I'll put the link in the show notes so you can read for yourself. There's, an, there's a very good Wikipedia article on Christian head covering. That's the title of it. You can find yourself or you can follow the link. It goes into detail on where it was practiced, and it was universal. Not, not literally universal. It was virtually universal. It was found almost everywhere for 2,000 years and before that because the Jews covered their heads too. So it is effectively the—it's functionally the universal practice of believers— the girls are veiled in church until 
Betty Goldstein Frieden came along in 1968 and changed church doctrine to the point today that not only will pastors agree with it and say, well, that's misogynistic, that's chauvinistic, that's sexist. They're parroting a Jewish woman who sacrificed children to Satan, to her God. They're parroting one of the most evil organizations ever to exist in the history of the world. And they're doing it in the name of second wave feminism because that's a good thing. That's, that's winsome. That's loving. How, how can you love women if you want them to cover their heads? How is that not hateful? How is that not subjection? So go read 1 Corinthians 11. Go read the Wikipedia article. And then think about the fact that church doctrine and practice changed because of what a pagan organization did in the 70s. Just think about that on your own. I'm not even going to draw a conclusion for you. When I talk about genealogy of ideas, that's exactly what I mean. Where did this come from? Don't tell me it came from Scripture. Don't try to find a proof text to sanctify the modern practice. Tell me why it went away after thousands of years of universal, continuous application. Why did it disappear? There's only one answer, and it has a name. If pastors or others want to go back and look at the cultural context, I am perfectly content to do that with them. Because as soon as they're done with whatever their little spiel is, I'm just going to point out, well, actually what it says in scripture here is that women have the covering because they are supposed to have a symbol of authority. So the symbol of authority is required. That is what scripture says. The example given is the head covering. So if you're offering an alternative to the head covering that is a symbol of authority for women to have on them in church and you want them to have that, by all means, please stand in front of the congregation and announce that. I will support you. But the history of the church is the head covering, and the head covering is good for order, and there is no reason to abandon traditions that are good. And not merely and that tradition, is a good tradition. But a, it's not merely yes. a tradition, it's a commandment from God. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm the symbol of authority is a verse. commandment from God, yes. <clears throat> Yeah, I'm going to read just that one verse. It's right from the middle of 1 Corinthians 11. Read the whole thing, but this is just cherry-picking one verse, because I want to highlight one of the arguments that actually illustrates our point perfectly. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, the insidious false Christian will read that whole thing and highlight because of the angels and say, well, what does that mean? I'll tell you truthfully, I've read a bunch of different answers and speculation and explanation. I don't know what because of the angels means, and I don't care. That's the entire point. The reason that we did the episode last week talking about the perspicuity of Scripture and why it is so... You believe it, and then you try to understand it. And if you don't understand it, you still believe it. So when God says, that is why a woman ought to have a... a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head... And I, I'm, I didn't look, but I would guess that wife is probably the feminine. It probably means wife, girl. It, it's, it probably encompasses all of them. She's to have a symbol on her head. And the clause, because of the angels, if I don't know what that means, if you don't know what that means, that's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. You can't say, well, that could mean anything, so this doesn't apply. Because it's not like he said, because of the Roman laws or because of the Egyptians. When, when Paul wrote that, he wasn't talking about something material. He was talking about something immortal. 
when he says because of the angels, if we don't have an explanation, all we have to know is that the because of was intended to be explanatory. Even if it's not explanatory, it's not the justification. The justification is that God said it. And when he specifically says because of the angels, and he's referring to something eternal, all you have to know, even if you have no idea what that means, is that the angels haven't changed. So whatever Paul was talking about hasn't changed. It applied then, it applies now, it applies in heaven, it applies everywhere. Because girls do not stop having a head that is their husband or their father. It is always going to be there. My father will always be my father, even in heaven. That doesn't change. Headship doesn't change. God is a God of hierarchy and order. And it's not a free-for-all in heaven. It's not going to be a free-for-all in the new earth. There will still be ranks. And when this alludes to the, the passage about there being neither marriage nor giving in marriage, I think that that's clearly about procreation and not specifically about the relationship because the fourth commandment demonstrates that those relationships are preserved. They're, they're eternal. You have a father and a mother. Well, if if you say that no, neither marriage nor giving a marriage means that she's not, she's my mom, but he's my dad, but they have no relation. No, I I, I can't accept that. These are eternal matters and they're eternal commands because again, it's the eternal will of God that these things be practiced and passed down as tradition because they're necessary. The word there in 1 Corinthians is, in fact, gune. It is wife or woman. And so as we close out this episode, I want to go over a few quick housekeeping matters and then a sort of summary of not just the episode, but also generally what we are doing with this podcast. And so you may have noticed this is a slightly different episode type. It was a sort of grab bag. We are going over various questions, issues in Christianity. In this particular episode, we were going over things that are in Scripture, but the church has largely abandoned. In the future, this episode type, we may also be answering questions or concerns from listeners. And so toward that end, we now have a feedback form. You can go to the website, stone-choir.com slash feedback. I just set up that form, very simple form right now, maybe a little more complicated in the future, but feel free to send us questions, concerns, hate mail if you're so inclined, whatever you feel like sending. And so that's pretty much the, the housekeeping. I may make a separate feed for these episodes for those who want to have them segregated out from the regular ones. So if you have concerns or questions, you want to quickly look at an episode, you can sort of differentiate the, the types of episodes that we have. And the housekeeping done as a sort of summary of what we're doing here. Ultimately, we are defending the truth. And we are defending the truth in this particular episode by defending things that are in Scripture, that are often very clear in Scripture, and that modern Christians have abandoned, or in some cases, not so modern, when it comes to shaking the dust off your sandals. And we defend these things because Satan today is attacking the first article. During the Reformation and in the century or two leading up to the Reformation, Satan was attacking 
The second article, Satan was attacking justification. He was attacking the heart of the faith. But if we lose the first article, we lose the faith no less certainly than if we had lost the second article during the Middle Ages. Because when you fight over truth, what is truth? Well, God is truth. And so if you abandon the truth, ultimately what you are actually abandoning is God. Because to deny any truth is to deny all truth. That is why we are fighting for these seemingly minor issues. Because when it comes down to it, fighting over whether or not a woman wears a veil in church is a relatively minor issue in and of itself. But it is not a minor issue because of what it represents if you get it wrong, and ignoring it, incidentally, is getting it wrong. Because the veil is a marker of headship, and so if you get the veil wrong, you get headship wrong. The veil and headship are both truths. If you get those wrong, you get truth wrong. If you get that wrong, you lose God. There are no small doctrinal errors, and that is why they are all worth the fight. Every hill, when it comes to Scripture, is worth dying on. So where Scripture is silent, we do not necessarily have to speak. We can speak. It is a matter of wisdom. Where Scripture is silent. Where Scripture is not silent. We are not permitted to be silent. Those who decline to defend the truth sin in so doing, and they risk losing God. Fight the good fight.